Well, amen. You may be seated. So glad that you're here and joining us this morning as we open God's Word together. Uh, my name is, is Jamie Ingram. I'm the worship and missions pastor here at the church. Uh, it's my privilege to get to be here with you today and to get to share a little bit, uh, you know, exciting life update development with my family. Uh, my son, a couple weeks came to me ago, came to me and said, Dad, it's time. I'm finally ready. I want you to teach me how to ride a bike. Now, some of you are out there, you know my son, you're going, isn't your son nine years old? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And the truth is, yes, okay, I'll take it on me. We did not really push him to ride a bike, but he came and, okay, I want to do this. My, I, my friends are riding bikes. We're learning this summer. I want to learn how to ride a bike. I said, okay, great. So we got the training wheels off of his bike. We got everything ready. And I am here to tell you, I am absolutely amazed at how many obstacles there are to overcome in helping someone learn how to ride a bike. We got him up there on that thing, and we went to push him off for the first time and kind of took that first pedal, and woof, that foot came down. Oh, Dad, I'm just really afraid that I'm going to fall. I'm going to hurt myself. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? For, for a split second there, I was thinking maybe this was tough love time. Maybe just give that bike a little push, you know, help him get over the pain, you know, it's going to happen. I didn't do that. Instead, we went to Target. We got the helmet, we got the elbow pads, the knee pads, I considered getting a pillow just to strap around him, just to make sure he felt secure, everything was going to be good. Got him up on that bike, we pushed him off, and now his obstacle's not afraid of getting hurt, it's balance. You know, he's kind of all over the place on this thing, he's trying to figure that out, and then starts getting that, okay, now let's just try looking at the road for a little bit, son, so we don't run into any cars or trash cans, etc., okay? He gets that figured out, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get confident, I'm going, we got this, we're here, it's time, he's going to ride the bike, and his back tire popped. So we ordered a new tire, we got it in, I put that thing up on, you know, upside down, and we got the new tire on, and if you've been around, you know anything about Ingrams, you know that we are super good at taking things apart and destroying them, not so much at the putting it back together aspect. So he gets 15 feet down the road, the chain falls off his bike, that was on me, that was my fault. We get the chain back on there. Finally, everything's good. We're going to go for a ride together. And the back tire on my bike was flat. And on and on and on. And all these obstacles, all these hurdles. You know, they say it's, it's hard to learn how to ride a bike. I think it's even harder to teach somebody how to ride a bike. But I'll be honest with you, like for me, there just was this thing in the back of my head that kept me going through this whole process, which was just, I have all these great memories of being my son's age and riding a bike. It was something I loved to do. We, we would tear around our neighborhood. We had so much fun. It was such a great thing for me as a kid. I just remember the wind, you know, whipping through my hair and all the great sights and sounds and all that stuff. And it was just such an awesome memory. And I wanted my son to have that. So whenever he would get discouraged, my message to him was always the same. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. It's worth it. This is going to be worth it in the end. 
As we come to our scripture passage today, I think that's the same message that Jesus is bringing to the church at Philadelphia. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. It's going to be worth it in the end. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 3 together. I think this passage is going to encourage you. If you're here today, you've accepted Christ as your Savior. I hope this passage will be an encouragement to you as it has been to me to keep going and to keep following the Lord. Now, a couple of things as we kind of get going. Uh, Number one, there's so much great stuff in this passage. I wish we could cover it all in 30 minutes. It's not possible, but we'll do our best. As we're kind of coming into this passage, though, there are a couple things that I do want you to kind of know and understand about the history and the geographical location of the Church of Philadelphia. You remember these letters are going on this circuitous route around the region near Patmos where Paul was writing this letter. And Philadelphia specifically lies at the end of 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 a valley. And it gave it this great strategic position for trade route, for postal route, for all these different things. But it also put the city of Philadelphia into harm's way on a few occasions. Number one being just because there were a lot of earthquakes in the region where Philadelphia was located. In fact, uh, in AD 17, there was an incredibly devastating earthquake in the area that had destroyed a lot of the surrounding area. Many of the homes and things in Philadelphia were damaged. In fact, a lot of the people had moved out of the city, kind of hurting the economy of Philadelphia because they were afraid that at some point there was going to be another major earthquake. These aftershocks continued for so long. So even at the time when John is writing this letter uh, and giving them Jesus' words, there were still a lot of people who had not moved back to Philadelphia. The other thing that you need to know kind of about the history of this town is that it was in a very volcanic region. Now there's some pros and cons to that, right? The con is you're by a volcano that could erupt at any time. The pro is that the volcanic ash made the soil very fertile. And so Philadelphia was a region that had a lot of vineyards because you could grow a lot of things there very well. However, around this time, the Roman emperor Domitian had come in and basically said, hey, I know you guys are doing good with the vineyard thing and that's really helping your economy, but we're going to take half your fields and we're going to use them to grow corn instead. Cool? And so he came in, he's changing everything up, and this is drastically impacting in a negative way the economy of the church at Philadelphia. Now, I don't want to say anything, okay, maybe this is region-specific, but apparently corn was not as viable of a crop as growing the vineyard stuff was, okay? Uh, So this is damaging their economy. So the, the city of Philadelphia is facing a lot of these external pressures and things that are going on. The church itself in Philadelphia is also experiencing some attack. There was a local Jewish congregation that had come in and had come against the church at Philadelphia and was trying to get them to believe that they were not uh, going to be spending eternity with God, that they were not a part of the kingdom, that they were going the wrong way. And in the midst of this, this church is becoming very discouraged And so it's into that context now that Jesus steps in and says these words to the church at Philadelphia, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, 
the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come, down, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I love the way that Jesus formulates this argument, okay? He doesn't come in and go, I know, church, you're facing this opposition. Let me just deal with the opposition. I'm going to come in. I'm going to tell you why they're wrong. I'm going to undercut that, what they're thinking. I'm going to make sure you understand they're not right. He could come in and he could start with, hey, I know you guys are hurting. Let me just encourage you. Let me just start with that. Let's go there. It's not where Jesus begins his argument. Jesus begins his argument with who he is. He says, I'm going to start with myself. I want you to know and understand who I am. And Jesus tells us four things about himself in verse 7. He says to the, the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The first thing Jesus tells us is that he is the Holy One. The Greek word here characterizes Jesus as one especially set apart, belonging exclusively to God. And we see this phrase, the Holy One, throughout the New Testament, and it's used as a messianic title. In Mark chapter 1, there's a man with an unclean spirit who sees Jesus and his response is to cry out, and he says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to Simon Peter, and Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is the Holy One of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so when he speaks, his words are holy. And so we as the people of God, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, when he speaks, we've got to listen. We've got to listen and obey what he says. Jesus says, I'm not just the Holy One, I'm the true one. Jesus is the genuine, authentic, true Messiah. And I was thinking about this this week. You know, Jesus, when he does things, because he is God, he does them perfectly. And the truth is, you and I do not have a concept of people doing things perfectly because, no offense, we're not perfect. We mess up. We make mistakes. 
So you could take the person in your life that you would consider to have the most integrity, to be the most truthful person that you know, and they don't hold a candle to Jesus because Jesus is perfectly true. He is the authentic, genuine Messiah. He is the true one, and everything that he says to us is true. He goes on. He says, the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David. I thought that was kind of an interesting turn of phrase, so I wanted to look into it. It comes from a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22. It's speaking about a man named Eliakim. He says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. The picture is this. Back in these days, Hezekiah is on the throne, and he had to get rid of his previous steward for various reasons. Eliakim comes in, and he's given the authority to the house of David. In other words, if somebody wants to come see the king, they have to go through Eliakim. And if Eliakim says, no, sorry, you're not getting in, that door is shut, and you're not opening it. Nobody can come to Eliakim and and go, ah, you know, actually, you didn't know this. Okay, let's figure this thing out, and let's get the door open for him. It doesn't happen. Eliakim has the authority to shut and open the door, and he's the only one. On the other hand, if, if Eliakim says you can go into the presence of the king, nobody can stop you from being able to go into the presence of the king. He has that authority. And Jesus is saying that just like Eliakim had final say on who entered the house of David, Jesus holds the key to the eternal kingdom of God. He's the Messiah. And because of that, Jesus is the one who opens and the one who shuts the door. He has the final say on who enters the kingdom of God. He's the only way. We come to eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. And so when Jesus opens the door and says, you can come into my kingdom, there is no one that can come to, to, come to God and go, hey, I don't know if you knew this about that person, but you know, they did this and they did this, and somehow that door is now going to be closed to you. If Jesus says you're in, you're in. On the same token, if you do not accept Christ as your Savior, Scripture is clear cannot enter the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus himself summed it up this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the Holy One, and every word from his lips is true. He is the Messiah, the only way to eternal life and to eternity in the presence of God and his kingdom. Now, I love that way of starting. Because Jesus is writing to a church that is hurting, to a church that is having their beliefs attacked. And so Jesus doesn't just come in and go, hey, you should know better. He comes in and he says, don't forget who I am. And because of that, you can walk and trust and know that I am with you. Look at verse 8. He says to the church, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. I don't know how many of you had a parent or are a parent, but you know when your parent comes to you and says, I know what you did, that's either going to go really good 
or really bad. This is our sixth letter to the churches. We've seen quite a few churches that had some things they did that were good and some things that were bad. We've seen some churches that just had bad. The amazing thing about the church of Philadelphia is there is no condemnation to this church. There is nothing that he comes in and says, hey, you guys need to work on this. You need to think about this. Be careful of this. Instead, he comes in and he says, I know your works, and he starts listing them and commending them for them. He says, I know that you have but little power. We're not exactly sure what he means by little power. It could be referencing the size of the church, that it was a small little church. It could be talking about their influence, that they didn't have a lot of influence in the area. Maybe it was their economic ability. Remember, this is an area that's been decimated uh, economically, so maybe that's it. Maybe it's a mixture of all of those things. If I had to guess, I'd probably go with size, that it's a small church. It seems like they at least had enough influence to get this local Jewish congregation upset with them and attacking them. But the amazing thing is that regardless of their size, it didn't have any impact on this church's desire to stand firm for Christ. You see that phrase, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Both of those phrases are in the aorist tense. They're in the past tense, meaning that there's already an event that has occurred that Jesus is referring back to. You've already walked through this trial. You've already had this test, and you've come through it victoriously. So while we're not told exactly what's happened, it seems safe to assume that at some point this church of little power was pressured by the local Jewish community to disregard Christ's teachings, to deny him, but the people had survived the crisis without faltering, even though they were few in number. Church, I got to tell you, that's kind of an amazing mark to have as a church that you stood faithfully. We live in a culture today where it is so easy for a church to compromise the word of God to the culture. The culture is pressuring us all the time to say, okay, well, maybe Scripture didn't quite mean that, or maybe Scripture doesn't say that, or, okay, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe there's lots of ways, you know, there's all these things that the culture wants to hear the church say, and I see churches all the time that get caught up with compromising, with saying, okay, well, we're just going to give in a little bit so we can ease some of the pressure. That's not what we're called to do. Our Savior is Jesus. His word is true. And when he says something, we are called to believe it and to live in light of it. He's given us his word. And it is true. And we've got to follow it. And that is what the church, Philadelphia, was all about. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus isn't writing a church, the church in Philadelphia to challenge them to fix something about their walk with the Lord He's writing a hurting, bruised, battered, probably discouraged church to encourage them to keep going. I was thinking about this. I, you know, I think sometimes when we're in, midst, we're in the midst of a trial or, or a storm, you know, it's like the waves are crashing down around us, everything's going on. All we really can do in that moment is just hold tight. It's after everything kind of calms down that suddenly we go, oh, I really want to be doing this. So I, you know, the doubt kind of begins to creep in. And I wonder if that's not what's going on here with Philadelphia. They've survived this trial. They've come through it. They didn't give up. They didn't quit. But now, in the aftermath, maybe there's a little doubt. 
Maybe there's a little unsurety. Is it really worth all this to follow Jesus? And it's into that that Jesus steps in to remind them who holds the keys to the kingdom and who decides if the door is open or shut. Did you notice that little phrase in verse 8? Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. It's almost like Jesus started in on the I know your works thing and he just couldn't help himself. He's like, okay, make sure you didn't miss this. I said it in verse 7. I hold the keys to the kingdom. And with you, the church at Philadelphia, I've opened the door. The door is open to you. You are a part of the kingdom. Don't worry about what the opposition is telling you. If you're telling you that you have to, to be a part of this Jewish congregation in order to be a part of the kingdom, they're wrong. The only way of salvation is through me. I am the Messiah. I have spoken, and it is true. One of my favorite things about being a part of Desert Springs is our, our opportunities that we have to write letters to our missionaries. And one of the things I think is hilarious about this, I don't know how many of you have dealt with the international postal system, uh, but it's not great. And when you send letters to people, often they don't get there for months and months at a time. But one of the things that I hear back from our missionaries all the time is it seems like when God allows the letters to finally get through and get delivered, they always seem to show up at the right moment. Hey, I just want to say thank you so much for your letter. It was such an encouragement. We were just really discouraged. Things were not going well. And all of a sudden... I got this card, it was for Easter, which was six months ago, but it just reminded me that God is good and God is with me and God is faithful and I just gotta keep going. That's not us, that's God. That's God sending that word of encouragement as fits the need of the moment. And I imagine that's probably what this letter was for the church of Philadelphia. They're struggling, they're walking through a difficult season they're discouraged. Now here comes Revelation. And if you can imagine getting chapter 4 through 22 without that letter at the beginning, it probably would have been a little discouraging to read all that without this encouragement. But God knew what they needed as fits the need of the moment. From the source of all truth, from the one who holds the keys to the kingdom, Jesus sent a word of encouragement. But Jesus also has some interesting things to say in this passage about their opposition and about this congregation that was opposing the believers in Philadelphia. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, it's the second time we've seen that, that's pretty strong language, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Some pretty strong language. And again, I think maybe there's some contrasting going on here. Jesus characterizes himself as the true one. He is perfectly true. Look what he calls the synagogue of Satan. They're liars. They're liars. The Greek word here for lie is translated to communicate what is false with the evident purpose of misleading. The, the members of this Jewish synagogue had, had gotten caught up in this lie. What was the lie? I think the lie was that they were doing the things that were going to lead them to the kingdom of God, that their religious institution, that their good works were going to lead them to the kingdom of God. And they were deluded by it. To the point where now they believed it so much that they're actually coming back to the church and saying, you're believing in this Jesus guy? Yeah, right. You're not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. 
You got to be a part of our congregation. That's the only way to get there. You got to do what we do. Have you ever met a person that's caught up in a lie? I've noticed it seems like there's this like natural process that happens with it where you believe the lie and at first it's just kind of like oh, I'm thinking about this I'm processing it and then you begin to believe it more and more and more and now like you're like I'd be stepping into that picture going hey you know be careful this seems and now it's, it's almost starting to get angry like well you don't believe this so I'm against you and it seems like that's what's kind of going on here this group of people has fallen so deeply into this lie that now Satan is stirring up in their hearts to come against the congregation. The sad thing is that they're the ones caught up in the lie. They believe that their works are somehow going to get them into the kingdom of God. It's not. Works do not hold the keys to the kingdom. The Messiah holds the keys to the kingdom. They're believing that their religious institution is somehow going to save them, that being a part of this thing is going to save them. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think it's really interesting, Jesus' response to their attack. He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. See, here's the truth. One day, this synagogue of Satan was going to know the truth. Whether it was in their lifetime or in eternity, they were going to know that Jesus was the only way to heaven, that he was the Messiah, that he loves the church. And I'd like to believe that there were some members of the synagogue of Satan that were going to figure that out during their lifetime. And that they were going to come to this group of believers at the Church of Philadelphia and just say, thank you. Thank you for telling me about who Jesus is. Thank you for sharing the good news. And I know I was not kind about it, but thank you for keeping on. Thank you for enduring. Thank you for sharing that message of hope. I believe I was wrong. I was caught in a lie. But I understand now Jesus is the only way. Thank you for sharing that with me. But the truth is, even if they didn't understand it in their lifetime, there was a day coming makes me think of Philippians chapter 2 which says there is a day when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father ultimately the Jewish opposition to the Philadelphian believers will come to understand that God loves the church and that the true kingdom consists of those who have trusted in Jesus alone as their Lord and Savior. We don't know how many of them came to find Christ before their life was over. But we do know that ultimately they all understood the truth. And now that Jesus has reminded the church of who he is, given them an encouragement for their faithfulness and had his say about the opposition... Jesus turns his attention to the future and to the glorious hope awaiting the church at Philadelphia. He begins in on the promises. Verse 10. 
Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. Now, I would love to spend 45 minutes on these promises. There's so much good stuff here. We don't have time. But I will tell you this. You will be blessed this week if you take this passage and you read it and you study this. I mean, I'd encourage you just to skip ahead to Revelation 21. We're talking about the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21 is about the New Jerusalem. It's an amazing thing. If you don't want to wait a year for Steve to get there, read it yourself. It's going to be great, okay? But with the time we have, I just want to briefly look at these promises. The first is that they will be kept from the hour of trial. It makes total sense why he'd write this to the church at Philadelphia. They've already walked through this, this trial that's been very difficult for them. I think that maybe looking at all that is to come would have been a lot. Jesus reminds them, I'm going to keep you from it. I'm not going to keep you while you have to walk through it. I'm not going to keep you while you're in the midst of this trial. I'm going to keep you from this trial. It's interesting to look at the specifics of what's going to go on in this hour of trial. It's coming on the whole world. It's not confined to a region. And it's to try those who dwell on the earth, not just those living in Philadelphia. Now that phrase, dwell on the earth, is used several times in Revelation. Every time it's used, it always speaks about the tribulation. This trial goes beyond anything normal trial and testing that we can think of. This is a, a period of time in which all who dwell on the earth will face extreme difficulty. It's talking about the tribulation. This church was not going to have to go through or remain in the tribulation for Christ was going to keep them from the trial. The second promise that Jesus gives the church of Philadelphia is that they will be in the presence of God. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. It's kind of an interesting picture here because you think about a pillar in a temple. I mean, I know we don't have a lot of temples around here, so you just have to imagine in your mind, you know, but what does a pillar do, right? A pillar holds up the roof, and a pillar doesn't move. I've never seen a pillar on wheels, you know, that could go, okay, take five pillar, we got this for a little bit, you just go out, you know, get some sunshine, do whatever you need to do. A pillar is always there. And so the picture and the idea that Jesus is giving here is that in eternity, we as as, as Believers in Christ are going to get to be in the eternal, full presence of God. And when we think about eternity, it's kind of interesting because I don't know about for you, but for me, a lot of times I focus on the me aspects of eternity. Like, it's going to be great to have a perfect body. Uh, I have to go to uh, the chiropractor, you know, every couple weeks right now. It'd be super great to not have to do that anymore, right? Like, I focus on that kind of thing. There's going to be no more weeping or hurting or pain. That sounds pretty good, right? We are going to have relationship restored. Sounds pretty good. But the greatest thing about eternity is that we'll get to spend eternity with God in his presence, enjoying him fully. It's going to be an amazing future. 
There's a few things in that verse 12 I kind of grouped together into one category, talking about our eternal relationship with Christ. He says, I will write on him the name of my God. This implies ownership. We will spend eternity with God, and we will be gods. We are gods. He owns us. We are his. I will write on them the name of the city of my God. The church in Philadelphia, all those of us have come to faith in Christ. We will be citizens of the eternal kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem, a majestic city with no temple, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. A city with no sun or moon because God's glory gives it light with the lamb, and the Lamb is its lamp. He says, I will write on them my own new name. In eternity, our appreciation for who Christ is will be made full. On this earth, we are limited by our humanity. But in eternity, our limited grasp of Jesus will be expanded beyond what we can imagine. And we will be able to worship him all the more. What a glorious promised future that awaits the church at Philadelphia and those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior. And with that future in mind, Jesus gives a call to the church at Philadelphia to keep going, to hold fast, and to overcome. I kind of skipped over verse 11, but I want to come back to it now. Jesus says there, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The church had, at Philadelphia had patiently faithfully endured. They had walked through trial and Jesus comes in and he puts his arms around him. He says, keep going. Don't give up. It's worth it. How sad is it to think of the believers who run this race in this life who get to a certain point and decide that they want to give up. You know, I think about People I've known who love Jesus, who walk with him faithfully, who've stored up crowns. And then at a certain point they say, you know what, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. And they go in their own way. Maybe even more insidious is the times when I've seen believers who walk faithfully with Christ year after year after year, who get to that certain point and say, you know what, I've done enough. I'm just going to put this thing in cruise control from here until eternity. I'm going to show up, but I'm, I'm going to be apathetic. I'm not, I'm not going to work at this. That is not what we're called to do. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to run the race, to fight the good fight of faith every day until that day when we see face to face, when our faith is made sight, when we are in the presence of God for all of eternity, when we are with our Savior. That is our calling. We are to live and to walk as overcomers. The ESV translates this as the one who conquers. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8 where Paul writes, Knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loves us. If you're here today and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a conqueror. It's not because you're great, no offense. It's because he's great and we are in him. If we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we are promised a place in his kingdom, and now we are called to live like who we are. The call to the church at Philadelphia was to cling close to Christ, to not let go, to hold fast, to stand firm in their faith no matter what was coming down the road. 
And I love the way that John, speaking the words of Jesus, ends that letter. In each letter that he writes, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a reminder to us, to those of us who are in Christ, to examine our own hearts. Say, okay, this is Jesus, he's writing to this church, but where am I at? So I want to ask you today, do you need to be encouraged to hold fast? Are you feeling beat up and bruised spiritually? Are you struggling with doubts about your faith? Are you questioning if it's all worth it? Maybe there's a temptation. You're just like, you know what? I could just give all this up and I could go do that thing. Maybe you're here today and you've just got it in cruise control. From here till eternity, I've just decided not to try. If that's you, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you with the ones, with the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is his encouragement to you. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus is coming soon. So hold fast. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep going. Don't let anyone steal your crown. Live like an overcomer. Keep living for that day when faith will be made sight, when we are in the presence of God in his kingdom, enjoying and communing with Christ. What a day that will be. So let's keep going. Let me pray.